This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time, and if my daddy thinks I'm fine, they tried to make me go to rehab, I won't go, go, go. Good evening and welcome to Hooked. Joy 94.9's new program about addiction. Research shows that the LGBTI community has addiction problems of at least twice that of the general population, and we want to explore why and how this has come about. There are many suffering addiction, many more that are affected by those in active addiction, and people that are grateful in recovery. My name is David. Oh, good day, David. My name is Russ, and happy midsummer to you. To you as well, Russ. What are some of the reasons behind this addiction problem in our society? Are there parts Pathways towards recovery and change. How does addiction affect loved ones, family members, and partners of those in active addiction? You know, Dave and I aren't experts in this field. No, no, no. We're just a couple of mates who both happen to be in recovery together. So we believe that there needs to be a conversation in our GLBTQI community, and that's what we're here for. Yeah, you're right. There does need to be a conversation. Yeah. And if you'd like to join us in that conversation, you can SMS us on 0427 JOY 949. That's 0427 569 949. Or email us at onair at joy.org.au or there's also another one, hooked at joy.org.au. Well, Did you realise we've got our own one? Oh, I love it. I know. If you're experiencing any immediate problems or if content of this program raises issues that cause distress, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14, which is lifeline.org.au, or Beyond Blue on 1300 2246 36, and that's beyondblue.org.au. Hey, Russ. Yes, my did friend. Did you notice the front page of the Herald Sun today? What a newspaper, and yes. I did notice that. It's all about pill testing. Yeah, I know. It's the Port Phillip Council. It's right up there in the headlines everywhere at the moment, isn't it? Oh, look, I've got to apologise too, because last week we were talking about it before the midsummer dance parties and all that sort of stuff, and I think I might have mentioned that there'd been nine deaths this summer, which is nine too many. In fact, there's been six deaths, and that's not to detract from those six deaths, which are all tragedies, of course, but there has been, I'm making a correction here, there have been six dreadful deaths around Australia in those last few months because of dance parties. Pill testing. um, I couldn't believe how well behaved everybody at Midsummer was yesterday. I was banging on a bit last week about (laughs) how the party season is about to start and there'll be drugs and alcohol everywhere for our community members. And look, there may have been yesterday. It wasn't evident to me. Um, I thought everyone behaved so well at Midsummer. I was trawling around Alexander Gardens for hours and hours on end. You were trawling around. What a happy community we have. What a happy, happy community. You know, Mayor Dick Cross is the guy that really wants uh, Port Phillip Council to have pill testing with their upcoming St Kilda Festival. Good idea. It's a a very big day. Now, there's some support from some of the upper house MPs in the Victorian Parliament. Mm. People like Fiona Patton and a few others are saying, look, you know, well, they don't necessarily hold complete balance of power, but as a voting bloc altogether, they can hold balance of power. Now, Fiona has said that we're living in one of the most progressive states, uh, as our Premier has stated, and she wants to see this happen. How the uh, 
the Mayor of Port Phillip is going to be able to get away with this or get this moving with support of upper house MPs uh, it'll be remaining to see so I'd say watch this space. Oh absolutely and you know Fiona Patton was the MP that introduced the uh, the Richmond safe injecting rooms. Well she was a proponent she was, of that. She yeah. was pretty um, pretty full on with um, the state government regarding the um, Richmond injecting room and lo and behold it's Richmond working. injecting room and also other laws such as uh, voluntary euthanasia and a few other things so you know hopefully we'll get a chance to get to chat to her on this program program in future Interestingly weeks. enough, um, last week we did have um, Steve from Sydney, I think his memory was. Um, my, Dave. Dave, Dave from, from Sydney, Sydney that's yeah. right. He said we should get somebody on the show who um, is speaking on behalf of the uh, the users about getting an injecting room and um, let's let's work on that one, shall we, Dave? Well, yeah, he was saying that, you know, there are a lot of voices in this space, but not actually from the users themselves. Exactly. But, you know, at the same time trying to herd cats together is a difficult situation, so maybe it's it's usually the representatives being health workers and things like that. Hey, tonight we've got a guest. Are you drum rolling this now? No, I could, but I'm not going to. We're not going to do Addiction of the Week. But okay. And I know you love the music too. <laughs> but tonight we're joined by the wonderful Jack Nagel. Now, I don't know whether I'm building you up, Jack, but it's great to have you here in the studio. No, thanks for having me. I love doing this stuff. And yeah, I, I really do. I feel honoured to be able to come on here and share a little bit of my story. Well, you have got quite a story because addiction took you to a specific place. Now, w- you were playing basketball at what league was this? Yeah, so heavily involved in basketball as a junior, you know, so I was involved in all the state programs and um, in the end travelling overseas a little bit um, to play tournaments and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's one of the regrets, I guess, when I look back on it. Definitely don't know if I would have been a professional, but I definitely had the opportunity and, yeah, the world at my feet, as I like to say. True. Some people may have heard your story because you've appeared on pro programs such as The Project and other uh, radio stations as well, not as glamorous as our radio station here at Joy. <laughs> Uh, but your story really starts at basketball, and then where does it go? So yeah, it's um, it's it's really interesting, and uh, you know, when I look back on it, I still think sometimes, you know, how did that happen um, and get so extreme? Because yeah, if you looked at my life on paper, um, I had every reason not to end up where I did in terms of addiction, but I still went down that path and it spiralled out of control. And I guess, yeah, the first time I ever used drugs and started partying and all that kind of stuff never was because I wanted to be this kind of stereotypical drug addict. Um, I was just having fun. And yeah, um, I I definitely, a big part of my story was I was playing basketball so full on um, every morning and every night pretty much. Um, And I really had this like sense that I was missing out on being a normal teenager and, you know, um, chasing girls and having fun and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I noticed, yeah, it's a big part of my personality, but I'm, yeah, I'm super obsessive. So like with sport, I was all in and I kind of had the same approach, unfortunately for me with um, drugs and alcohol. And how old were you, Jack? So when I first um, started dabbling with it, um, I was around 14, 15. Um, Yeah, and the first drug I actually used wasn't alcohol, it was um, marijuana. And Mm. yeah, um, my friends were just kind of um, starting to smoke a bit of dope, as we like to say, um, with their older brothers and stuff like that. And I was just always really intrigued, um, yeah, by drugs and that kind of world. And Actually, every time I um, took a new drug or, um, yeah, tried different things out, I, was, I remember being incredibly, like, scared and yes. nervous about it. But when I did it, I actually really, yeah. You couldn't believe it. the effect it had. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't actually sound like an uncommon story. No. There is a difference bec- between 
uh, somebody that's just experimenting and trying out and somebody that becomes addicted. Yeah, that's right. So, so someone who's a good athlete like you were, yeah. and probably still are, I'm yeah. sure, um, the, we, we call this sort of addic- addiction, um, so it's, it's high-functioning. You know, when, you, when you're playing sport in the morning and in the evening and you're really 100% all in and then on the side there you've got this little habit forming that's, that's starting to take over your life. Is yeah. that how it happened? 100%. And it's, it's really... Um, insidious because yeah that was part of the trick for me definitely and you know I guess being young and um, kind of naive as well is that yeah I just kind of thought I was invincible Mm. and because it wasn't for a lot of years um, yeah it didn't have the catastrophic effects on me even though I kind of had a habit with different drugs I was still able to yeah play basketball and do all my life um, in at the same time. It's (laughs) funny you should mention that word invincible because I suppose most of us when we are younger do feel invincible and straight away I just suddenly thought of Matthew Mitchum who is a gold medalist diver who was also invincible and fell into addiction after he'd got his gold medals if you mm. remember the story about yes, I do. yes I do yes I do maybe it, it's something to do with that that high achievement or um, I, I don't know we, we can't answer that I mean did you come from a poor family or from a did, did you live in a drug native neighborhood or anything that would sort of preclude you to addiction no and and again that's the um that's the interesting thing and and something that I've found more and more working with other people is that yeah this issue can affect everyone and anyone really you know it doesn't um that's a kind of common saying in recovery circles but yeah it doesn't discriminate um and yeah i come from a dead middle class family mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah had everything i ever really needed and had heaps of opportunities um and nothing really you could pinpoint that went wrong in my um childhood or anything like that so yeah it's um it's interesting and the more people i talk to there's so many people with that story mm-hmm. um yeah that prevents them from actually getting help for a long time and, and it is that whole higher functioning thing you yeah. i know for me with my in my recovery i was able to go to work every day yeah. i was really good at my job i was able to go out at night i had friends family partner all of this happening at once but i couldn't put down the grog yeah. i had to get more and more of it into my system every day and i you know but it wasn't until the point of well 28 years of of, of solid drinking <laughs> that i got myself into a position that i thought oh i need help yeah and and for you it was the same i gather yeah it, it was and i guess um one of the lucky things for me and one of the unlucky things at the same time was that yeah i eventually started using ice and um the nature of that drug is yeah it just brings you up so high and Mm. um yeah gets you to that end point uh really fast uh and i guess i was completely broken a lot earlier than you see a lot of other people using drugs that are downers and stuff like that so you started using ice how did that affect your life where did that take you where where we're heading towards the rock bottom but what was the story there yeah look for, for me it really was i guess the drug that poured the petrol on the fire and made everything really bad. You know, I had addictions to other drugs before I actually mm-hmm. picked up ice. Um, and part of the reason why I started using ice is because I was using um, speed. And at first I could spend a lot less money on ice for a much greater effect. And that was kind of a bit of a trick for me. So I just started using ice all the time and it started to be the only thing that I could get. And then, yeah, really within like a year uh, to 18 months, um, yeah, I, I just experienced all the lowest lows that, yeah, you kind of hear about really um, and had kind of progressed from um, smoking it to using it intravenously and um, had the mental health and the suicide attempts and, um, 
yeah, just the broken family relationships and really went from being that kind of high-functioning addicted person to, <laughs> yeah, that kind of stereotype, I guess, that you see on movies and stuff like that. Isolated, uh, no job, no sport, That's no right. friends. Yeah. Uh, Nothing. That's right. And the the thing um, that I find that's really, really um, interesting about this stuff um, and that I talk to a lot of people about and also a lot of families is that I actually wanted to stop. I didn't know what that meant, um, but I just wanted my life to be different mm. a long time before I actually stopped. Um, but yeah, it just felt like there was something else kind of driving my bus and in control of me. And right. um, yeah, it was incredibly hard to break that cycle. And as a result, I just felt incredibly uh, like guilty and full of shame and hated yeah. myself really. Mm. I couldn't have put it into words then, but that's really what was going on. And it's now, interesting you should say that, Jack, just to touch on that for a wee second before before we go to a break, it's the stigma around yeah. drug taking because um, there certainly isn't that stigma around, well, a lesser stigma around smoking dope and then a much, much lesser stigma mm. around drinking alcohol. So perhaps we can, can talk about well, the stigma. Well, you know, stigma. the other thing is, though, the addict is always great at lying. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, the, the addict will always put on the bravest front and the most yeah. perfect image uh, while being totally worthless in their own mind, but it's to do with that front. Yeah. I mean, did well, you put on that front for as long as you could? Oh, 100%. And the mm. biggest person I lied to um, was myself, you know. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of, even though I was feeling like that, I spent a lot of time trying to convince myself that you had I was okay can, yeah. or that, you know, things were going to be different or I wasn't as bad as that person or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. All right, look, we're going to go to a break and then, Russ, you want to ask some questions about actually ice usage. Yes. And... Um, We'll come back in just a moment. Yes, you're listening to Hooked with David and Russ. Join 94.9's program about addiction. If you're experiencing immediate problems or if content of this program raises issues that cause distress, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. Tonight on Hooked, we're talking to Jack and Jack uh, is a person in recovery and uh, used to be an ice addict. If you've got any questions for Jack about ice and how he got into recovery and how recovery can help you, you can most certainly message us into the studio at onair at joy.org.au or, or 0427 JOY949 and you can message in your questions to us about ice addiction and recovery. Yeah, I think Jack Nager will be certainly ready to answer those questions. Now, Jack... Now that we're on to questions, yes. we're um, novices, Dave and I, about this drug ice, and I'm assuming that uh, some people out there most certainly will be, so if there are partners of people who are on ice or parents and so on and so forth, what is ice? Good question. Um, so, um, I'm, I'm not really good on the scientific lingo, but basically it's a crystallised version of amphetamines and it's a very um, potent 
form of amphetamines. So if you imagine um, from back in the day, if you had speed, it's kind of yes. like 10 or 20 times stronger. Is than that, that right? That's okay. right. Yeah. All right. So, and it was, I could imagine how addictive that would be. Yeah. And it is very addictive. That's the, that's, that's the problem. Yes. But also cheap. You said it's cheap. Cheaper than speed. Well, yeah. Well, it wasn't that time. Uh, I, I think... Um, the scary thing that I've noticed now is, um, so back when I was actually using ice, um, not to go too much into specifics, but it was about a thousand bucks, right, for a gram of it, um, which is quite a bit. But when you first start using it, because it's so potent, you only need to use, you know, sort of a point at a time or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But the scary thing now, which I'm hearing when working with people and stuff, is that, yeah, grams are kind of around two, three hundred dollars, even cheaper. Um, yeah. Yeah, which has really kind of brought it down and um, the potency um, from what all the scientists are saying has actually gone up. Um, So, yeah, that's part of the problem. Um, And, yeah, but it is so addictive because it is so strong, basically. And why can you get it everywhere? I don't, you know, is it just something that is so saturated into the market that Mm. and and everyone wants to buy it that there's a demand and everyone, you know, I don't understand that. I wouldn't even know where to go and look for it. But I, I gather when you go and line up in a at a nightclub, you someone might come up to you and say, "Do you want some ice?" Yeah. So, and this is a the real changes that I've noticed is that um, yeah, there's a few things, but definitely supply and demand. Um, more people want it, so you know, obviously, more people start making it and trying to bring it here and all that kind of stuff. And I think actually a really big reason, you know, we're talking about stigma before and it was definitely my experience. um, They were even showing the ads of people on ice throwing chairs through hospital windows and all that kind of stuff um, before I picked it up. And I was really scared of ice before I started using it. But when I actually used it the first time, it had a completely different effect. And it was actually, um, yeah, people use drugs because they feel good. (laughs) Um, And I had a completely different experience to kind of what I saw or what had been depicted in the media and then I think that's Which relates to why you were scared initially to take it. That's right and I think that kind of perpetuates people's use a little bit as well is because they have this perception of it then they use it and it's something completely different and they just think oh they're actually lying to us. They're lying trust. to us and it's actually much safer. Yeah. Now, I've received a message from Dave from Sydney. Thank you, Dave. And he says, I've never used ice, but as you know, quite a few gay guys use it. You always know they never shut up talking. It's supposedly, he's wondering if it's supposedly a sex drug. Uh, that'd be about chem sex, but that's something we'll talk about on another program. Very little sex, but lots of listening to lengthy, one-sided conversations. It just prompted me to ask you, how can you tell if somebody's on ice? Uh, it's... um. It is uh, quite easy to tell. So from my understanding, there's not much speed around um, Mm -hmm. these days, but uh, pretty much like what the message says there is that people will be talking a lot. They'll be really sort of energetic um, and they feel like they're sort of normal, but they'll kind of be rushing around. Um, Yeah, just very high energy, basically. Um, And then the tricky thing that can happen, though, is once someone gets a really strong dependence to it, is that they can start to present quite normally only by using a little bit. So it can be harder to tell sometimes. But, yeah, definitely... um, Everything I would say is sped up, um, and their energy levels and stuff like that is very. So, high. were you using all the time? In the end, all the time, yeah. And that's where a lot of my lows actually um, came from. Was because I was so dependent, I couldn't get it all of the time, um, or I didn't have the money for it all the time, and then that pushed me to do different things. Mm. And yeah, and that's where things kind of start getting messy. There's actually mm. something in your story about just before you actually sought any help, and it's to do with money and 
uh, using a lot of the drug. Do you want to tell our listeners about that part of the story? Yeah, where, sure. Where so from there. So all my mental health problems actually didn't come from being on the drug. It came from when I was coming off the drug and that was incre- incredibly painful for me. And in the end, um, using drugs and ice in particular was about self-medicating for me and making me feel normal or forgetting about everything else that was going on in my life. So when I didn't have it, I became incredibly desperate. And I'm actually um, very well-natured um, you know, soft as butter, I like to say, big teddy bear. But yeah, uh, the drug ice just pushed me to do things that I was really scared of and I ended up stealing, yeah, like thousands and thousands of dollars and basically I just went crazy and used it all at once and it ended up being the thing. I'd had lots of rock bottom moments or heartbreak moments um, but, yeah, uh, this last one was the final straw for me. It wasn't even the worst thing that happened but I basically spent roughly around $7,000 in a couple of days and was up for weeks on end, um, yeah, using ice and went completely crazy and a bunch of stuff happened. Oh. And and the moment for me was that I woke up in this random house, got dropped at a train station, it was freezing cold, um, and at that time I only had one pair of clothes. I had this big um, puffy red jacket, really random. Um, I, I was When I checked into rehab, so I'm six foot five, um, and because I wasn't eating or anything, I was like 65 kilos, oh, so I was skinny, super yeah. skinny, um, yeah. skinny as a rake, and yeah, just... Um, had lots of mental health going on and I just remember feeling so broken um, and I was kicked out of my house at that point um, where, where I was living with mum and I went back and knocked on her door and it was she opened the door this time because for a lot of times before that she hadn't been opened the door and she would like call the police or things uh-huh. like that and she let me in and there was this there, she has this big mirror um, in her bathroom and yeah basically it sounds really cliche but it's actually what happened um, I basically looked into the mirror and um, my life almost flashed before my eyes. Um, And, yeah, I sort of saw myself what I was for the first time, really. Um, And, yeah, I I kind of knew that I went from this happy-go-lucky guy that had a potential basketball career and, yeah, was really loved by everyone, all that kind of stuff, to basically stereotypical um, junkie that, yeah, had had suicide attempts and all that kind of stuff. And in that moment was enough for me just to ask for help. And I'm incredibly lucky um, that, yeah, I have a um, supportive family. Mm. Um, And, yeah, mum had already been talking to loads of rehabs and all that kind of stuff. And I was able to get into one, which, um, yeah, was very lucky. So so from this extreme mm. addiction, yep. um, it, how long did it take you to go from daily use to asking mum for help? Yeah, so with ice, um, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. For me, it was about everything's so blurry, but it was about it was about a year or eighteen months. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, I think a big part of it for me was. Again, I'm fortunate and very lucky that I didn't die a couple of times with the um, suicide attempts that I had. But, yeah, I just felt so bad about myself all the time. And um, I can't can't even describe the kind of pain that you're in when you're feeling like that. Um, Really pushed me to, yeah, get some, ask for some help. Yeah. And you were lucky. And that's what most people don't realise. That um, all you've got to do is ask for help. That's right. Um, That there are people out there who are are willing to help you. Yeah. The... um, the desire to take more and more of this drug, it's, it's what the scientists and the medical people say, that the mm. addiction is, is incredible. That yeah. You go into this massive high mm. and then you keep chasing that high and the, the, um, the damage it does to your dopamines or the, or the brain yeah. cells is that you just crave more and more and more. Yeah. 
Um, how do you stop? Yeah, good question. Yeah. Um, I mean, you knew you wanted to stop, you said before, but mm. you couldn't. That's right, yeah. yeah. I think the thing that, um, and yeah, you guys would probably know this as well, but the thing that um, definitely ice is super addictive um, and if you like to say more addictive than other drugs or, and whatever, but I think the thing when someone's in that level of addiction, it's more about all the underlying stuff that's going on and the unresolved psychological and emotional issues mm. that are like petrol on the fire, which I didn't yeah. realise, coupled with that extreme physical addiction. Mm. And, and we don't become addicts for no reason at all. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and, and even though I um, wasn't aware of it at the time, I think, yeah, I needed more and more drugs to push all that stuff down. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, every time I tried to stop, I would just have these incredible cravings and this, like, you know, yeah, um, people call it like the mental obsession or just like machine gun thoughts about using the drugs. But I also had, I can remember it, like this urge in my chest that felt like it was going to jump out, that I just needed to go and use drugs. And the amount of time that it would actually give me relief in the end was a very small small window whereas sure. at first it was quite big yeah. it's funny how you said uh it's uh it's a double-edged sword but you're you're quite lucky that becoming addicted to ice was a quicker journey because you become yeah that's uh, right addicted so fast and then you go down so fast as that's well right. hey we're going to hear about more of jack nagel's story after these messages and a quick track as well This is Hooked on Joy 94.9. Well, there you go. You're listening to Hooked with Russ and Dave on Joy 94.9. This is our GLBTIQ show on addiction and drugs and recovery. And it's something that our community needs to talk about. Today, we've got Jack Nagel here with us who uh, is in recovery. And we've heard his story about how he was addicted to ice. And he had asked the big question of his mum, and that was, I need help. And she was there to help him. And we are going to find out all about his experience now in rehab well, yeah. and stigma, the stigma yeah. that went around being a being an ice addict. How did this all unfold with your mum and everything? You, you said during the break that you were you had your mum helping you buy before you could get into the rehab. Yeah, so I, I just feel incredibly lucky. And in a way, I was just, again, I was just incredibly lucky that I had family around to strike while the iron's hot because I often found that when I wanted help was that there'd be a moment in time where I wanted help but then I would change my mind the next day. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened with this rehab. I went for the assessment and they did it all um, and they said, well, um, we can't get you in here until a week's time. Um, and at the time I was like, yeah, well, that sounds good. And they actually told me that, you know, I should try not to use ice and the other drugs that I was using, but I could smoke um, as much dope as I wanted to to kind of get me through. Mm. Um, and I thought that was kind of cool. Sounds um, good. But evidently I didn't stick to that. Um, and, yeah, for the next week I 
I feel so sorry for uh, my poor parents because, yeah, I had them driving me around to um, dealers' houses wow. and all that kind of stuff. And I just had moments where I just did not want to go. Um, and I remember the morning of actually going to rehab. I had a couple of bongs and, yeah, I was so anxious and so scared um, yeah. to kind of face the problem and just, yeah, really scared of kind of what might actually come out of me. And I had a profound experience, actually, when I went to rehab. Yeah, I was going to say what happened when you, you walked through the doors of rehab. I haven't been to a rehab, so I don't know. Yeah. But what happened then? So I, I went there and I was so scared, as I said, and I remember walking through and I met a couple of people and whatever, and that was good. And then we went into our first, you know, and I was kind of feeling okay, I guess, because I was off my face a little bit. And I went and sat in, you know, they do the groups and um, group therapy and they had a circle and I kind of thought it was pretty weird and didn't know what was going on. But there was this big bloke that had heaps of tattoos and kind of looked quite sort of tough and whatever. And he just broke down and started talking about how bad he uh. felt about not being there for his son or something like that. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, that's how I feel. I've never heard anyone talk like that. Yes. <laughs> that is crazy. And in that moment, I think it just kind of smashed down a lot of my barriers and sort of opened me up to maybe this could work for me and I remember actually sitting there and I just started crying uh-huh. and the um, yeah the counsellors and whatever were like you know what's going on and then I started talking on my first day <laughs> and it kind of just happened like that and look in rehab I gotta be honest I was for the first week I was a nightmare I well, they um, would have detoxed you perhaps they did but um, so the rehab I went to was all about kind of total abstinence yes. um, and uh, yeah, I only got a few Valium really right. um, for a few days. And yeah, it was just even a couple of Valium didn't even touch the sides. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was just incredibly um, difficult. And it was more for me the psychological side. So with ice, you know, yeah, you get a bit tired and lethargic and all that kind of stuff. But it's really um, psychological uh, in those early weeks um and yeah i just wanted to leave every single day um Mm. when we'd go on our morning walks and whatever um and yeah it was just really really hard and they used to make us journal and i just used to write um yeah like all this kind of crazy stuff i can't stand being in here that's right that's right because i knew that the counselor would be reading it in their office or whatever the next day so i just used to let loose um but i don't know after after a couple of weeks I, i guess there was something inside of me that just wanted my life to be different it didn't necessarily to me at that point you know didn't um kind of manifest itself into wanting to not drink or use drugs again it was just i don't want to like kill myself anymore i want to stop shooting up i want a girlfriend i want to put some weight on i really wanted my life to be different and yeah i remember my mum said to me that um i remember she actually left my first visit because i must have just looked so kind of Forlorn. Yeah, just destroyed. And um, I remember when she came back the second time and I remember she started crying and she just, you know, oh, you look normal again and all that kind of stuff. So She could see her son again. That's right. Um, And I had another couple of profound moments in the rehab where... I just I started to really trust this counsellor and it's mm. kind of a lot of what I do now and I was lucky um, that I went to a place where all the all the staff were professionally qualified but they were all in recovery as well and right. that was very big for me um, and it wasn't so much their stories and whatever it was more them being able to intimately describe to me how how I was thinking and feeling you know because you don't walk into the dope house and kind of say you know I'm feeling ashamed today because I stole money out of my mum's purse exactly. or whatever yeah. um, mm-hmm. and it actually blew me away 
way and that was so big for me and um, it encouraged me just to kind of open up some little parts of my story and yeah really kind of gave me some healing um and i sort of got into a couple of weeks in and i started to feel better and i just sort of ran with it from there um so it's interesting how you know what i hear there is you know you're terribly scared when you arrived yeah and how lucky were you that that guy broke down because that gave you um a glimmer of hope and um and 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 you were able to identify with him straight away yeah and that's what um, that's what rehab's all about. Yeah. It's all about the identification and, and, and hope. And I don't think people quite get that. No. You know, and again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier is the stigma. Yes. Now, you wouldn't describe a rehab like that now, would you? No, you? no. And when I... So, I, I quite... I remember quite vividly going there and thinking from what I'd seen on um, TV and my experience of like psych wards and stuff like that um, or trying not to go there was that I really thought rehab was going to be, you know, kind of stray jackets, people shuffling around in yeah. their slippers. Yeah, on God knows what drug, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. ready um, to line up for the lobotomy. Right. How long were you in rehab for? So I did a month in like yep. kind of a really intensive one and then I was really lucky I got referred on and was able to stay in kind of like a youth-supported a comm slash um, extended program for 18 months, which was really the key for me um, to kind of really change my life. And it did change. There was a there was a point though, because you know we've heard other recovery stories. Well, Russ and I have heard them, and I think we've had a couple on the show already. But there was another turning point, and it, it's the Harriet Rand story, isn't it? Yeah. So um, it was kind of interesting. So I went through all just, this. Oh, sorry, just for the listeners yeah. uh, who don't know who Harriet Rand is, but uh, there was a premier of New South Wales for many years, yep. um, and his name was Neville Rand. He had a daughter. You know, good family uh, and premier for uh, decades, I think, as well. But the Harriet Rand story is quite unique. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's because um, I guess it was such a public figure and a, um, yeah, a child of a public figure um, that eventually it came out. Um, I think something legally happened and, yeah, Anyway, it ended up... It was up a murder. That, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it ended up that Harriet Rand was, yeah, on ice and all this kind of stuff. Um, and at that time, I'd kind of been clean and sober and whatever for a, for a while, about 18 months or a couple of years. And I'd, I'd told my story in a couple of other forums. Um, and then I got a call from the project, of course, because everyone was covering it and they wanted me to mm-hmm. come on um, live on the project and share my story. And I went and did that. And it really um, was this massive shift for me in my life and kind of part of the reason why I'm doing what I do today because, yeah, I went and told my story and obviously a lot of people watched that show and I was overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of people, family members, users, people that have been affected by ICE in some way that got in contact with me on my personal Facebook messenger. Um, yeah, I literally had like nearly 500 messages the next day just people kind of reaching out asking for help wondering how they could yeah do something different in their lives and i thought geez there's got to be a better way to start talking about it and that's why i love what you guys are doing um because yeah you just never know who this stuff affects and and on that point jack what how did your mum know who to call for you it's really interesting and again I'm I'm very big on like the personal recovery stuff for both myself and families mm. um but 
mum, I think she'd been to see professionals and stuff, but she always talks about one of the biggest helps for her was that she actually met another mother that had ah, um, a child. I think he went through heroin addiction or something like that yeah. and was in recovery and she got some advice and pointers off her and she really related to this lady and found out about yeah, a bunch of different rehabs and stuff, but she actually heard the rehab on the radio. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and that's kind of how she found out about it. It's funny it. because your mum sounds like the Steve Carell character from Beautiful Boy. Yep. She was willing to do anything and she wanted to go to any length in order to save her son, which yeah. is amazing in itself. We're going to talk about real drug talk after this. these few messages. On Joy. Yes, you are listening to Hooked on Joy 94.9. It's our program about addiction with David and Russ. Tonight's guest is Jack Nagel, and Jack Nagel's been telling us his story about addiction and where it took him. Um, we got as far as rehab. We've got as far as you've been... Uh, we've got to the point where you've been clean and sober for a while, and you were being hunted down by the media to tell your story, and then, because of that, you were being hunted down to try and help people. And this is where uh, Real Drug Talk was born. Yeah, that's right. So um, at the time I was working in a rehab centre and that was great, Um, but I reckon for every one person that we helped, we missed out on helping, you know, 20 or 30 other people because of whatever reason, too anxious to come and all that stuff. Um, Didn't know about it, the stigma, all the the kind of um, stuff that we've been talking about. And, yeah, when I started doing some of the media... Again, I was just overwhelmed at the response that I was getting and I thought, how can we start to kind of put this together in a way where we can just reach more people and get it out there? And, yeah, it's evolved over the years, Real Drug Talk. And, yeah, I I left the rehab work and um, started to get involved with working with, do a lot of work with professionals trying to get in, yeah, the lived experience stuff just because it helps so many people to relate at the start but yeah just started with a little facebook page and the funny thing about real drug talk is that we'll do posts and all that kind of stuff and they might get a couple of likes and whatever but we'll get a massive amount of people messaging us um in the background and i think that's a lot to do with um stigma and all that kind of stuff um so yeah i find that really interesting but it's morphed a little bit over the years but now we do a lot of work with professionals to try and get yeah that recovery model in base a little bit because in Australia it's not um, kind of heavily done in the um, public sector and all that stuff and also like we've we've just moved into doing pretty much from what I can tell anyway Australia's first kind of online programs to do with addiction and all those kinds of things because if you're looking for a bed and you're right. in addiction uh, for every hundred people how many people get into a, a rehab maybe one yeah and for the there's so many reasons waiting times um and like i was describing with my story you know i was lucky that i made it but a lot of people are ready for some help but they can't get the help for a couple of weeks it's the same down for the you track. too russ yeah absolutely finding yeah. a bed yeah, well, I had to wait wait a few days before I could. And what happens if you don't have private health insurance? Exactly right. You, How much you does a rehab list? cost these days? I don't even know. Oh, $20,000? That's a whole episode in itself, yeah. yeah. 30000 and up. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a lot. And then there's only a couple that are covered by private health where you only pay a little gap. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, you have to have special cover to fall into that. So, yeah, it's really... Um, 
the the treatment space is really closed off and then you have all the other issues that come along with it with yeah people just feeling like they don't want to go and spend time with a bunch of 30 strangers and bear their soul you know and they're just anxious about it it's really hard to actually sometimes get people into rehab so we've actually been surprised we've, we've been having a lot of um, good success with engaging people with the online stuff which is great how does the online stuff work so we have um, we have two programs um, we've got one in depth program which is six weeks um, and basically is everything that you'd get in a rehab but packaged into automated video series we've got professor nicole lee on there as well who's really big in um, the addiction uh, treatment space and then an exercise scientist so we try and kind of get the whole thing happening but basically it's automated video series with you know in-depth resource manuals and questions that people can then go and put out into their life um, and get connected up um, and then there's also like private Facebook groups and stuff where they can get involved and start speaking to other people that are in the program and all that kind of stuff and the biggest thing which I'm excited about is that we're engaging a lot of as we we're talking about before high functioning um, uh, people that because of stigma they don't want to go to rehab because they don't feel like they can relate to the other clientele or consumers that might be in there and yeah, they still are kind of holding their life together mm. and having some sort of an online intervention is really good because, yeah, they are self-motivated to some extent. Um, and that stuff's really them. hard. I mean, I, look, even even today, I, I can hear people asking questions to me, for example, oh, you're not still doing that or... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, aren't you okay now? What, what, what's your problem? And yep. people don't get it. And there is still the stigma around any sort of addiction and recovery mm. that, that people have this vision of, of you know, the, uh, well, for an alcoholic, it's someone sitting in a park with a brown paper bag and a, right. and a stubby. And, and for p- someone who's an ice addict, it would be, you know, living in a park with, you know, no teeth, I would imagine, and a hoodie. And, and scratching yeah, yeah. scabs. That's, that's right. And, and even, you know, that's something that I always always try and really touch on when I do these interviews, Mm. you know, because it's hard to um, um, explain to people that, yes, this is my story and this is my experience, but that doesn't mean that it's everybody else's. And there's actually a massive percentage of people that don't end up in that kind of bottomless pit of the 1% and but are having big issues with ice and other drugs um, that maybe don't need those extreme kind of rehab interventions they can get go to self-help groups or yeah do online stuff or go and see a professional mm. and get some strategies and tools and really start to turn their life around but because of stigma and what you see in the media everyone's throwing chairs through windows and stuff when they're on ice and they don't reach out in the first place now jack you're young and yep. this is the thing that I always love about meeting people in yep. recovery. That it, there's never, it's never too early to ask for help. That's right. You know, you're how old are you now? Uh, 27 now. 27, and so you sought help when you were. I was 21 20, when yeah. I stopped. Yeah, 2021. 20, yeah. yeah, and you've got the rest of your life ahead of you now, and yep. you're not addicted to ice anymore. Yep. And that's because you asked for help, and it's it's really well, as simple as that. Yeah, that's right. But also, what if you are using? quite a bit of ice what would be the warning signs that you would know that you are actually addicted what would you be looking for in yourself if you gave advice to you know there there must be uh warning signs how would you recognize those warning signs great question so the biggest one i think is um actually what's going on inside yourself when you're not using it um so if you find yourself starting to think about using it a lot and that might be just when you're at work or doing different things in your life it's not the weekend and you're not partying that's usually a good sign that or not a good sign a strong sign that 
there might be an addiction coming on um, because, yeah, you're actually starting to build that craving for it. Um, I definitely think if you have any tendencies where you buy a certain amount for the night and you're using it um, and then you find that on Sunday you're buying some more Mm -hmm. and it's starting to drag over into Monday and Tuesday... That's usually a strong warning sign that there's an addiction starting to build. And I just think, you know, people are usually pretty aware of kind of their moral um, compass and their own values and stuff like that. And often if you start to cross any of those morals or values and start stepping over that magic red line, then again, another strong warning sign. And also isolation is a big one. If it stops becoming a party and starts becoming a... Friday night in, yeah. um, that's usually dangerous. And again, focusing on the, on the help side of things, which mm-hmm. I think you um, are, are the perfect gentleman to talk to. The the what do you mean the physical health? The oh no, more more about the um, the fear that yep. that surrounds it. I suppose you know one thing that we can tell people for yep. certain is that you'll you'll ask for help. It'll be the scariest thing that you'll ever do in your life. Mm. But you'll go in there and all you're going to do is talk through this problem. Nothing else is going to happen to you um, and you'll get what you ask for, really. Don't you find that that your um, decision to go into um, recovery was the the hardest but the best thing you've ever done? 100%. And not only with ice but all addictions, really, trust is such a big issue with people and that's why I'm so pro... You know, I, I know... Not everybody has this experience, but an overwhelming percentage of people that I talk to all talk about if they are able to speak to someone that's in recovery, that's kind of been there and done Mm. it at the point where they're just reaching out for some help um, and just hear their story and they're able to kind of get something that they can relate to out of it, it just breaks down those barriers and allows someone to feel a lot more comfortable and, and trust and alleviate that fear so that they because can. Because in addiction, we feel like we're the only ones. Correct, mm-hmm. correct. Uh, look, we're going to put a link on our podcast to uh, Real Drug Talk. There's a Facebook page um, and also a website as well. So we'll put those into the podcast, which will be coming up on Wednesday. I uh, just wanted to quickly, uh, wanted to ask you, because you're also uh, active on social media in Twitter. Tell me about your Twitter account. Yeah, so... <laughs> I've had a little look. I've done some stalking. Apparently, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. Hey, yeah. Is anyone? No, I don't think so. But it just seems your Twitter account is Donald Trump. I thought, oh, you know, we might find something. No, no, no. If you have a problem with drugs, Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA are a fellowship of men and women for whom drugs have become a major problem, who now meet regularly to help each other stay clean. For more details on Narcotics Anonymous, call 95252833 or online at na.org.au. Okay, you're listening to Hooked Still on Joy 94.9, uh, Joy's program about addiction in the LGBTI community. Our special guest tonight has been Jack Nagel. Uh, Thank you so much for coming in tonight. It's great to hear your personal story and it's so honest and candid. Thanks so much for having me. Again, I'm not um, blowing smoke. I do really feel honoured to be able to talk about it. So thanks. No, look, it's a pleasure to have your company. We hope that you've enjoyed tonight's show and remind you that if you're experiencing immediate problems or if content of this program raises issues that cause distress, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 
36. Now, it is important to move away from self-destructive reasoning. Recovery involves breaking the cycle of addiction, removing the trigger of negative thinking and restoring ourselves to emotional sobriety. One of the greatest highs in life is feeling good about ourselves. Always remember that none of us are alone in this world and the first step in recovery is to ask for help. We want our community to be one of hope and look forward to your company next week as we continue to explore addiction on Hooked. Meanwhile, it's goodbye from Russ. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, David. Goodbye. You can find more Joycasts and show blogs. Go to joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.